Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod, the federal government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act was justified. Now what? Plus, Middle Kingdom mischief. Chinese consulate officials glowed after influencing the vote in two Richmond ridings during the 2021 federal election, according to top-secret CSIS documents. We speak to the MP demanding changes. And pay it forward. Meet the UBC student who spreads cheer with hidden coffee gift cards. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Let's get to our top story today. The Public Order Emergency Commission said that the Liberal government met the very high threshold for invoking the Emergencies Act during the Freedom Convoy protest last winter. Now, the public inquiry found that while protests uh, had protesters had blocked borders, clogged streets, and in many cases polarized public opinion, uh, it was unlike anything the country had experienced when it comes to protests. The report, which is more than 2,000 pages, describes quite a bit of detail how the protests began. And uh, when I was looking through some of the uh, some of the pages, there's definitely lots of blame to go around. They said that the protests were, uh, protesters were unruly and unlawful. The report also says that the prime minister, whose comments most likely uh, inflamed the situation. There was also a mention, of course, of, of the Ottawa Police Service, that it was overwhelmed and unprepared for the protests. And, of course, the Ontario government that refused to get involved in what was transpiring uh, in their province. They just uh, kicked it over to the federal government and the city of Ottawa. Here is Justice Paul Rouleau, the Commissioner of Inquiry, speaking after he released a report. After careful reflection, I have concluded that the very high threshold required for the invocation of the Act was met. Now, the highly anticipated document, which is really the culmination of more than 300 hours of testimony and involved almost 9,000 documents, uh, which were entered into evidence during uh, almost uh, two months of testimony. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spoke uh, after the release of the report. Listen to his comments. He certainly sounds like a vindicated man. But the risk to personal safety, the risk to livelihoods, and equally the risk of people losing faith in the rule of law that upholds our society and our freedoms, those risks were real. That was uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking a couple of hours ago. Joining me now is Alex Boutelier, a senior national reporter with Global's investigations and enterprise team uh, in Ottawa. He has been reading through that report. Alex joins us now. Alex, thank you for speaking to us today. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, does this uh, report today exonerate Mr. Trudeau? No, I don't think it exonerates Mr. Trudeau. I think what it does is say that ultimately the Freedom Convoy demonstrations that we saw last year did rise to the level of a national emergency and that the federal government was correct to bring in emergency powers to deal with it. Now, that's not to say that, you know, um, again, that the federal government or other levels of government and the police are exonerated. Uh, Justice Rouleau, who led this inquiry, found plenty of fault as to why the situation became an emergency, but he did ultimately find that the federal government was justified in invoking emergency powers to deal with it. And when you say that uh, Mr. Trudeau uh, was not exonerated, was it his phrasing, his wording, in regards to how we articulated these people protesting and how we described them? Was that the challenge? I mean, I think in the lead-up to the protest's arrival, certainly here in Ottawa, but also in the manifestations that we saw in other parts of the country, I think that um, Justice Rouleau found that there was a failure of all levels of government to adequately identify what was coming and to prepare for it. Now, to be fair to those levels of government and to those policing agencies, the report does say that, you know, the Freedom Convoy protests were a singular event exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic and the grievances people had, and that we really hadn't seen anything quite like that, certainly in modern Canadian history. You know, that being said, there were signs, and there were signs picked up by law enforcement and intelligence agencies as the protests sort of got rolling, um, that had they been acted on, we might have had a very different situation, certainly in downtown Ottawa but also in places like Coots, Alberta, or at the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor, Ontario, which was another significant sort of strain on on both the government of Ontario and the federal government in terms of trade and economic damage. Now, the Ontario government, uh, to my understanding, when you, when you read the report, uh, uh, was also singled out uh, just in regards to their participation 
in conversations behind the scenes. It almost seems like Mr. Ford's government was reluctant to get involved. Yeah, that's certainly um, drawn attention to in, in the report. Um, you know, reading through the report, and it's 2,000 pages, so to be fair, I haven't gone through all of it, um, but certainly in the parts that I've seen that mention um, Premier Ford and the Ontario government, you know, Justice Rulo uses language like, you know, the people of Ottawa felt abandoned by their provincial government. He points out that, you know, ultimately the municipality here in Ottawa is a creature of the province. The province has a responsibility uh, both for the policing and for the city in general. And, um, you know, while, while I don't think, you know, Justice Rulo comes out and says, um, you know, something like this was Mr. Ford's fault or Mr. Ford didn't do his job, uh, what he does say is that, you know, the Ontario government did not participate in this commission. They actually invoked parliamentary privilege to avoid having to testify. So we don't have their side of the, the story. Um, but certainly, you know, from the perspective of here in Ottawa, um, that residents felt abandoned and that the provincial government didn't um, sort of participate quite as wholesomely as, uh, as the city of Ottawa and the federal government did in trying to address the situation here in Ottawa. And how were, were the, uh, the, how was the uh, Ottawa Police Service uh, treated in this report and in their handling of the protests? Right. Well, Justice Rouleau, um, you know, I, I think at one point says, you know, all of this cannot be laid at the feet of Chief Peter Slowly, the former chief of police here in Ottawa, who was kind of a lightning rod for criticism. Um, certainly as the protest dug in, he ended up uh, resigning, being replaced, um, and certainly a lot of the attention was around the dysfunction at the top of the Ottawa Police Service. Now, those of us who have lived in Ottawa for some time um, and have followed the Ottawa Police Service for some time are perhaps not as surprised as the rest of the uh, country is at that dysfunction. Um, but certainly through the testimony, um, it became very apparent that, you know, there, there were people working at cross purposes, both within the Ottawa Police Service, but also between the Ottawa Police Service and the Ontario Provincial Police and the RCMP and the other law enforcement and intelligence agencies who were, you know, trying to get their hands around this. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think the political fallout, and this is a difficult question to answer, and I'll, I'll say that right from, from the outset here, but what's the political fallout from all of this uh, in regards to uh, the government and even the opposition? Well, you know, I think the Liberals would have to... Um, characterize this as a win. Um, I don't think that, you know, they were chomping at the bit to invoke emergency powers or to even have to deal with, you know, uh, what would usually be a, a municipal policing issue. Um, but nevertheless, um, you know, it found that they were justified in doing what they did, which is about as good an outcome as um, they could hope for. Whether or not that's going to change anybody's minds, I'm not sure. I think even, you know, before the commission got going, I think, you know, public opinion in Canada was pretty... Um, you know, set in terms of whether people thought the federal government did the right thing, whether people thought that the federal government failed, wherever they stand on, you know, the motivations of, you know, the various motivations of the protests and the actions of the protests. So in terms of moving moving polling numbers, I'm not sure that it'll do a lot. Uh, Conservative leader Pierre Polyev, he was seen as a vocal supporter of, you know, what he called law-abiding protesters, law-abiding, hardworking truckers, um, certainly during his leadership campaign for the Conservative Party, he really hitched his wagon um, to those those truckers. Justice Rouleau is pretty categorical in his report that, you know, while the protest started out as law-abiding, um, it descended pretty quickly into uh, lawlessness and, you know, ultimately, um, you know, a national security threat. So that's going to be a hard thing for Mr. Polyev, I think, to explain. And I think if there's any sort of political legacy uh, in the immediate term of the convoy protests, it's going to be how effectively the Liberals can use uh, Mr. Polyev's support for these protests as a political weapon. Um, because I think, you know, based on the polling that we saw in the wake of the protests, uh, the majority of, uh, of Canadians were not in favour of what was going on, certainly here in downtown Ottawa, but also in places like Windsor and, and Coots, Alberta. Mm-hmm. Alex, thank you so much for your time to enjoy our conversation. Look forward to chatting with you soon. Yeah, anytime. Have a great weekend. Well, our next guest uh, gives you a bit of hope, a lot of hope, actually. Now, you've probably heard of terms like pay it forward or random acts of kindness. Whatever phrase you use, it all means the same. Do something kind for someone. 
Well, this guest that we're about to speak to definitely does that. He also does it without letting people know who he is. Jazzy is a UBC student. That's all I know about this gentleman we're about to speak to. He likes to bring a bit of happiness to his fellow students at UBC. Over the past year, he's been leaving coffee gift cards all over campus to help lift the spirits of his fellow students. He joins us now. Jazzy, thank you for speaking to us today. Uh, uh, hi, Jazz. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, so let me yeah. ask you, uh, how did this start? How did you uh, come up with the idea of just leaving coffee gift cards uh, around campus? Uh, well, I mean, uh, so it started about in like uh, November 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like uh, classes just transitioned like back in person. So, you know, like I, I, like personally from my level, like I was trying to, I was having a hard time adjusting and like, you know, just from what I was observing, it was just a lot of like, you know, kind of like just not really like the most positive outcomes and like just a lot of negativity and like gloom, just, just seeing like on online, like the Reddit page and just, uh, even just talking with like a few of like two, two or three of my friends that were in my like classes with me. And then like just randomly, like, you know, like the last round of midterms finished up, uh, I just thought like, you know, like I, like I, I consulted with one of my friends. I'm like, Hey, like I have this idea, like, you know, about maybe, you know, try leaving like a gift card around or something like that. And then you'll see like, if somebody, you know, like, just like, kind of like a, I don't know how to, like, phrase it properly, but just kind of like, you know, somebody finds it and then, like, uh, it cheers them up. Like, it cheers them up. Like, not want to say cheers them up, but it's, it kind of, what it kind of initially started is, like, you know, like, because a lot of people were, like, I guess, studying at the time mm-hmm. between, like, when the last t- round of midterms finished before, like, final started. I'm like, you know, maybe I could just probably leave, like, a couple gift cards around and, you know, people can probably take that as kind of like a study break and I'll, like, post it near, like, areas where there's a lot of people studying or whatnot, like that. And then, yeah, and then uh, it was just kind of like my way of like you know kind of giving back, just because I'm like you know like 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 I was just like I'll try to like you know see if I can implement some sort of like positive uh, vibe around here. In a yeah. Sense. Um, yeah. When you say people are having difficulty, was it um, mental health issues, uh, anxiety, or just I, I, people just being a little down and negative? I think it's just like with the whole weather and then just because we were, everyone was just coming back. From, like, this is just like from my experience when I was just observing mm-hmm. just because like, you know, like even myself, like I wasn't really in like the best like state of mind because, like, you know, we were just all coming back from like, like everything being online and like the pandemic. And there was just so much like isolation during like that 2020, 2019, 2020, 20 to like late 2021 period. So just, yeah, it just kind of gave me a little bit like food for thought. And then I was just like, you know, see what I could do. Yeah. Just see if I could do anything on my part. And uh, where do you leave these gift cards? Uh, just various places. There's really, like, no, like, concrete structure behind it. So I sometimes, like, areas where I've studied at, like, for example, like, the IKB library, that's a pretty, like, popular spot with a lot of, like, students there. So I'll just, like, hide it in, like, you know, like a random book and then, like, post it up there and be like, hey, it's in such and such aisle. And then usually, like, you could see, like, what book it is or something like a book i've left it around like uh i would say like sometimes just on a bench like outside like a main building mm-hmm. uh yeah just various places around the campus like that but yeah it's it just yeah books off i left it another popular place that i usually tend to leave it is like ubc has a rose garden right and mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like always kind of my favorite spot to like you know just to kind of see the sunset so i mean sometimes every now and then uh that's a pretty hot spot where i like the cards yeah uh so it- when you when you do that, you've been doing this now for a year, right? Uh, yeah, and are, about a year. Like I, I did have a little bit of a pause, like pause in between, just because of like summer break. But yeah, yeah. And are you planning to continue it? Uh, I mean, we'll see how it goes. I guess right. Uh, there's like I, I just kind of take it day by day. Uh, but like ideally, I do want to kind of see like what I like, like how if it could still keep continuing. Like if I once I graduate or whatnot, like that. But I mean. Those are just like questions that have to be answered in the future, and uh, I, I, I don't have like a definitive answer on that. Has has the attitude changed? Uh, and what I mean by that, when regards to anxiety, in regards to negativity, um, as we move beyond COVID, even though COVID is still here, ha- are you seeing people in better moods now at UBC? Broadly speaking, I think I think just it's just something broadly, just like I wouldn't say that. Like what I would say is just just because I think, like, now, like, everything's kind of full back, like, you know, like, uh, things are kind of really, like, back to normal, like, how it was kind of, like, on the pandemic, like, of course, like, the COVID's still around, right, but I definitely do see, like, you know, like, from what I, like, then again, it's just from what I've observed, like, around, like, people within my circle and just people that have come, 
at conversations around class like i would say but then again it's just like you know every day is going to be different right like i can't i can't like i, I it's going to be different for like everyone but so like, how often concerned, how often do you do it uh usually how i do it is around uh closer to like usually like usually like when the term starts and then when it midterm season typically picks up around yeah so that'll usually be like you know three four weeks deep into the semester like that's when i'll start it when you need a cup of coffee <laughs> Yeah, definitely, you know, like for those late nights or early mornings. Uh, yeah, so, and then around finals time, typically. Like, that's how i kind of been structuring it, in a sense, now. Yeah. Like, but then again, like, there's no definitive structure, and, I mean, that's still maybe that I'm trying to work towards, but it doesn't, it's just kind of like, if I go ahead. It doesn't cost a lot of money to be nice, does it? Uh, I wouldn't say so, no. I mean, you can you can like do anything nice in like various forms. I would say. Yeah, and and, and you're able to afford this right now in regards to just leaving a a few gift cards around. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm pretty fortunate. Like, of, like just I, I, like do this, but it's just like my way of giving back. Right, like that's why I kind of keep it anonymous. I'm not really trying to like you know like use it as like a self-promotion type of thing right no and and i gotta say we don't know your last name so we we have a phone number but that's it jazzy thank you so much for your time time now to catch up with our good friend uh richard zussman lots of going on in politics uh, provincially municipally and federally as well thought i'd call him call upon him to get his thoughts on on some of these issues joining me now uh, from victoria is richard hello richard Hey, Jess. How are you? Um, Happy um, Friday. Happy Friday. We're heading into a long weekend. Lots to talk about. Can we talk about this past week, first and foremost, when it comes to um, politics here in BC? Vaughn Palmer, the Vancouver Sun columnist, had an interesting column um, yesterday uh, talking about the fact that the first two weeks of this legislative session, the NDP have been scrambling uh, just to keep up with some of the basic uh, you know, needs of the legislature, the House. There's not been not much going on. They've had to adjourn early uh, on Thursday as well. What is going on over there? I think it's growing pains for Ravi Kalon, the new House leader for the government. Uh, it was a job that Mike Farnworth held for a long time, uh, ever since uh, the NDP formed government back in 2017. Uh, and it's proving to be a tough job. I think uh, Kalon is going to grow into it. He's also taken on the huge responsibility of being the housing minister. And uh, so the House duties uh, have caught him off guard a little bit, I think. There was uh, a few tricks played on both sides of the aisle and. uh as you know, uh, there can sometimes be some procedural uh, rigmarole that goes on at the legislature. And one of the challenges here was ultimately by the end of day yesterday, uh, the House had run out of things to debate. And so they actually had to call it quits a few uh, hours early. I, I saw a few MLAs scrambling to get on an earlier flight or earlier ferry because their trip back to Metro Vancouver was happening earlier than they had expected. Uh, and the government also had to roll out two bills late on Thursday. Normally those bills get introduced Thursday in the morning. They had to introduce them in the afternoon in order to ensure that there's actually something to debate next week uh, when the legislative session returns after the long weekend. So uh, the excuse from Calon was that this is a government that's being efficient uh, they are getting legislation passed. They are doing their work. They are at the legislature to debate. Uh, and the BC Liberals are not interested to doing that because in all the new legislation, the Liberals only put one person up to actually speak uh, in opposition to it. So uh, it's a little bit of gamesmanship, uh, learning on the job for Ravi Kalon. Uh, and we'll see if the legislature can sort of right its way, because if there's no legislation to debate before that budget, uh, then there are going to some, be some serious challenges in terms of whether the legislature can even sit uh, to get to that budget day. So I'm sure they'll find some crafty ways around it, uh, but it did create some chaos uh, yesterday morning and into the afternoon. <laughs> it's, it, I could imagine it when, when you're running out of things to debate. That is your job. So hopefully things uh, turn around next week. Let's talk a little bit about... A report that came out earlier today, the Public Order Emergency Commission basically said that the government met the very high threshold for invoking the Emergencies Act. Uh, We've talked about uh, Mr. Trudeau and some have said that he probably should have chosen his words wisely, which he didn't probably inflame the situation, but they did blame protesters for for being unruly and unlawful. Uh, There was some blame for Ottawa police and how they handled things. They also (laughs) blamed the Ontario government for basically being AWOL for the whole thing, pretty much. Uh, And then, of course, uh, Pierre Polyev uh, met with the press. It was a very chippy affair, uh, I am told. 
uh, in regards to his handling and his conversation during that uh, event. Um, many have said that, look, um, he catered to what they wanted. They, in many cases, the Conservative MPs inflamed the situation by their commentary and rhetoric. Here's Mr. Polyev responding to some questions uh, from the press. What I said before, during and after the protest was that I condemn anyone who behaves badly, breaks laws, or blockades critical infrastructure while standing on the side of the hardworking people who have suffered so much under eight years of Justin Trudeau. Now, I'm told it was a chippy affair. Uh, Where do you think we are in this broader conversation about vaccines and populism? Um, My sense sometimes is that those that hate Trudeau really hate Trudeau, but there's still a wide swath of this country that still remains skeptical of all of this, the protests, even uh, Mr. Polyev and conservatives. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And, and I think ultimately this exercise we just went through in Ottawa is not going to solve very much. If uh, the commission, the inquiry had come forward and said that Trudeau's use of the Emergencies Act was inappropriate, I think the prime minister may have been forced to resign. Now that this is behind him, uh, it allows for us to engage in another conversation. And as you rightly point out, shift this focus to what do the Conservatives stand for? Where are they at with this populism? Are they willing to flirt on the edges with these fringe groups in some regard that are you know, opposed to vaccine mandates, that continue to fight against all these health measures, the, the very few that still exist? Or is Paul ever going to start shifting away from what is often seen as uh, fringe right-wing politics and move towards the centre and hit on those issues that everyday British Columbians are worried about around how much food costs on the table and uh, that overall issue of cost of living. And uh, we will see what he decides to do. This may be, after a chippy affair, as you mentioned today in a press conference, this may be a bit of a chance for him to press a reset, try to distance himself in some regards from at least engaging on this conversation of the truckers' convoy, and focus on those more everyday centrist issues that will ultimately be his key to trying to pick up some seats. The Conservatives did really poorly in British Columbia in the last federal election. And if you want that success in this province and across the country, he needs to start speaking to those issues that matter to that working middle class, especially in suburban Metro Vancouver. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know in, during his last visit here, he's vil- visiting, um, you know, temples and mosques and churches in, in Richmond and many other suburban ridings, and that's where he has to win. He has to win in Richmond. He has to win in Coquitlam. He has to yep. win in Surrey. Um, yep. And that's the difference between a minority government or not, uh, or sitting in opposition or being a majority. And it's the same thing in, in, in provincial politics. The suburbs rule the roost, uh, and if you can win Toronto and win Vancouver, then you're going to be in government. And uh, I think he realizes that it's not going to happen debating these kinds of things. So let's see how all of this transpires. It's going to be very, very interesting. I had about 30 seconds or maybe about a minute or so. But this debate, uh, this conversation on commercial uh, drive, did you hear about this? Somebody deflating the bike tires at a a Moby station. You can dismiss it as someone being a jerk. I get that. But I'm always amazed at the climate change debate and conversation. You can have it at a high level. But we're actually having it at, at, at a very local level, at a street level sometimes, <laughs> this constant debate between cars and bikes uh, or, or all of the motorized um, uh, vehicles, whatever it may be, the climate change debate is actually not occurring at just the, our legislatures or the House of Commons. It's actually occurring neighborhood by neighborhood in many cases. I am stunned by this. And, and we will talk about this again because I know we're running out of time. I was just in Los Angeles yeah. and it's shocking to me the lack of dedication that city has to any other modes of transportation other than the car. And what we're seeing in commercial drive here with people deflating these shared bikes, these Moby bikes, and then motorists coming back and saying, too bad, so sad, us motorists want our parking spots back, is crazy that we're still even engaging in that. We need roadways that support cars, bikes, buses, Scooters, mopeds, we need walkers, we need a way for people to get around. And the fact that someone would be so crazy to deflate the tires on bikes and prevent people from going to work is awful. The same as an environmental activist who would deflate someone's car tires from allowing them to go to work to the hospital. Don't do that. 
stupid people. Let people <laughs> ride their modes of transportation. And if you lose a few parking spots, deal with it. There are other places to find parking. Absolutely. Richard, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jess. Well, it's Friday, folks. We should be celebrating. Well, in politics, of course, you celebrate Friday because the weekend's here. But politics is, uh, for Fridays for politics also means you, you send out press releases that have bad news or you send out press releases where uh, you don't want to deal with the media scrutiny. You just send it out late in the day uh, and then you go away. Well, today, Fisheries Minister Joyce Murray announced that the federal government will not renew licenses for 15 open-net Atlantic salmon farms around BC's uh, Discovery Islands. Uh, she says that recent science indicates uncertainty over the risks posed by the farms to wild salmon and that uh, the government is committed to developing a responsible plan to transition away from uh, open net farming uh, in uh, in uh, coastal BC waters. Uh, she did speak uh, about an hour ago. Hear her, her comments after she made the announcement. And so I decided I, that this was a situation that deserved a very precautious measure and so that's why I made a decision not to relicense not to relicense the Atlantic salmon um, aquaculture facilities in the DI. That was uh, uh, Fisheries Minister Joyce Murray. Talk about uh, dropping something late in the day uh, on a Friday afternoon. Uh, on It's a very significant story and impacts many people uh, uh, along coastal British Columbia. Well, joining us now is Brian Kingsett, Executive Director of the BC Salmon Farmers Association. Brian, thank you for joining us today. Yes, you're very welcome. Your thank thoughts? You what your thoughts on this announcement? Uh, well, we just found out just about an hour ago uh, and we are, you know, obviously uh, quite disappointed and frankly ra- rather angry that, you know, we wait until a Friday before a long weekend when the house is breaking to uh, make this decision. And that um, well, actually our first indication that the decision was happening was when a, uh, a anti-salmon farming campaigner group was actually sending out uh, their media availability. So I think they had a, a, an advance warning. The Discovery Islands decision in 2020 closed 19 farms and uh, is resulting in about 1,500 jobs being lost and um, about about $400 million in economic activity on Vancouver Island and the loss of about 120 portions of uh, sustainable salmon every year from production. So... The, that decision was overturned in court because the previous minister had not uh, done proper consultation, had uh, not followed the science, um, and was overturned. So Minister Murray had the opportunity today to make it right, and she's chosen not to. And she's followed the exact same path that her predecessor did by, as you said, uh, dropping bad news on the end of a Friday um, we're very curious why she has ignored the science from her own department that uh, shows that that uh, salmon farming in Discovery Islands was not having a negative effect on wild salmon. Mm-hmm. Will this go to court again in your mind? Uh, I suspect that right now, the uh, from my initial discussions with the companies, that they are all reviewing this with their lawyers, and I suspect that the... Uh, minister has put the federal department back in legal jeopardy once again. The uh, all the companies were awarded both costs and damages by the last judge, and our initial read on this is that she has done nothing differently than the previous minister did. Um, she has also, more importantly, uh, ignored the uh, the rights and title of the Lakoto Nations and the Clahoose First Nation in the territory. Uh, who have been engaged in partnerships with the salmon farming companies. And to us, that is probably the the larger uh, issue is that she is, um, you know, completely ignoring and has done not proper consultation with the local First Nations. Brian, what do you say that, uh, you know, environmental groups and, and, and some Indigenous nations are saying that uh, these... Um, uh, farms uh, are linked to the transfer of, of disease to wild salmon. And this is the right thing to do, that the fact that the, their research has shown that this is, this is not the way to go. It is, Ms. Murray has done the right thing because uh, these uh, Atlantic salmon are linked to the transfer of disease to wild salmon. What do you say to that argument? 
Well, um, I say that the since the Cohen Commission, where the Department of Fisheries and Oceans spent $37 million and was a- unable to find a link between salmon farms and declines in wild sockeye, the department has done another nine full Canadian Science Advisory Secretariat studies on issues. And another short one that just came out uh, was released a couple of weeks ago that said there is no correlation between salmon farms and sea lice as well as a multitude of other research um, uh, that says says that this is not an issue. That does not mean that the industry uh, does not have um, to continue to make sure that we undergo continuous improvement uh, to make sure that we don't provide risks to wild salmon. But she's listening to, to be blunt, she's listening to activist campaigners who are uh, forwarding uh, research that has yet actually to show anything definitive, mm-hmm. but they are claiming is um, produces you know re- has correlation. So uh, we disagree with that completely. Uh, this may be oversimplified. What's the chance of moving this industry to land? And, and I'm oversimplifying things. I know there's costs with it, but no, uh, no, absolutely. Um, so the issue of moving things to land is that a it is not a non-starter for British Columbia. Uh, the provincial government uh, just released a report saying that to move the R sector, which was before the Discovery Islands decision, about 90,000 metric tons, that the price to do that would be somewhere between 1.8 and 2.2 billion dollars, and that did not take into account um, any regulatory delays. The fact that we only have a few sites that are suitable for this in British Columbia, and certainly on Vancouver Island, we don't even have the power grid to support it. Uh, one of the things that affects us is that we are very proud of the fact that we provide uh, a very sustainable um, uh, protein source uh, that has is being shown by all sorts of international indices as having the lowest carbon footprint of almost any farm protein. And moving things to land means that that carbon footprint is going to go up very significantly. We know that climate change is actually the most significant uh, effect to wild salmon. There's actually more wild salmon in the Pacific, North Pacific Ocean than there has been in a century. It's just that they are m- largely moving northwards. Brian, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to chatting with you again next week. Yeah, great. Well, we'll uh, anytime. Let's talk a little bit about China. Today, the Globe and Mail uh, is reporting that China employed a sophisticated strategy to uh, uh, disrupt our uh, 2021 federal election. Uh, they got access to CSIS reports, uh, CSIS documents, top secret documents. Those documents have been shared, obviously, with uh, senior government officials uh, and also our intelligence um, allies, including the US, Britain, Australia, and New Zealand. It's also shared it with France and Germany, but it talks about how China. Uh, meddled in our election, uh, in, uh, specifically supporting 11 candidates, uh, most of them liberal in the greater Toronto area, and working uh, here in the Vancouver area against two uh, Richmond area members of parliament um, to one point where not only did they talk about the sophisticated nature of, of the campaign, but their, the consul general in Vancouver, Tong Zhuling, uh, boasted in 2020 about how she helped defeat two conservative MPs Uh, This is a clear, once again, another reminder of what we've been talking about in this show, that we've uh, allowed China to meddle in our uh, democracy. uh, And they use their proxies here in Vancouver, whether it be Chinese language media, um, who were instructed to press uh, home that the conservatives were too critical of China. Uh, And while they won't mention names, uh, the general consensus is the focus was in, as I said, the Richmond ridings. Uh, One of them was the Member of Parliament, Kenny Chu. He represented the riding of Richmond East. Uh, He joins us now. Kenny, thank you uh, for taking some time out of your busy schedule to speak to us today. Good afternoon, Jess. Good afternoon. Uh, You've been raising the alarms for a very long time, particularly uh, even before the federal election and after the federal election. What are your thoughts on on this uh, bombshell report today? Well, to tell you the truth, um, it's it's a piece of uh, news that that is about me personally. Of course, I'm I'm very concerned and uh, um, you know pay very much attention to it. But however, it, it, I'm more concerned and worried for the state of of our country, the national security awareness, 
in the governing, um, you know, federal liberals uh, government. I mean, one can argue that the the federal government's primary um, responsibility it's to protect Canada and to protect its citizens. Uh, what we have seen finally with evidence is that a foreign country uh, is conducting interference business here in Canada uh, without any uh, repercussion, without any, um, uh, you know, result or, or awareness of uh, the government. It, it's, it's high time that the federal government do something instead of just talk something. What would you like to see done? Well, several things. For, for example, there are, um, you know, Chinese uh, central government-controlled media broadcasting disinformation in Canada, much like the way CRTC, under the instruction of um, the federal government, to, to ban uh, Russia Today, RT, channel. Uh, these are the channels like uh, CGST, for example. Um, uh, CG, sorry, CG, CGTN, for example. And, and the opposition parties have been asking the government to consider banning them or to at least limiting their broadcasting rights here in Canada because of all the violations of human rights that they, they have committed, uh, you know, against the, the CRTC code. And they have not been doing anything. Um, if they are serious about uh, clamping down on foreign interference, um, for example, they don't need a study. They All they have to do is just uh, take a serious look at what uh, Senator Leo Hosako has already done in the Senate last year. He retabled my private member bill, have it, you know, have it looked at it seriously, debate it and amend it if you want and, uh, you know, put it into action. My my private member bill that I tabled two years ago was modeling after the Australians, um, the Foreign uh, Interference Transparency Act. And so, if you know, if they think that Canada is not subject to that, um, they would be very naive. And that's the, and, and the private, mem- private member's bill that you introduced basically says that if you are advocating and lobbying for a foreign government, you have to register and let people know who, you, who is paying you and who you're working for. Absolutely. That's a federal side. If you, uh, if you act on behalf of a foreign government that the uh, Privy Council office, the, the bureaucrats deem to be threatening to Canada, they are going to be listing a list of countries that are subject to that. Well, then all you have to do, you can continue to lobby your MP or federal judges or whatever. But all you have to do is just to expose it under the sun. Be transparent about your action. We're not, we're not asking anybody to not do anything. We're just trying to expose it under the sun. You know, when you look at um, the kidnapping of the two Michaels, you look at Huawei at one point wanted, wanting to help build out our 5G network. Uh, you uh, think about the research projects that we have been working with uh, Chinese scientists in our universities, right down to that first balloon that was shot over the United States that go, did go through Canadian territory and most likely flew over Canadian military installations as well. Uh, it seems like we are certainly on the, you know, on the outset trying, trying to be a little tougher, but when you look at what has transpired between China and Canada over the last two to three years, we're just sitting sheep, aren't we? A- absolutely. I mean... Uh, Jess, you, you you haven't mentioned even about the uh, the Winnipeg uh, uh, microbiology lab, the level four, the only level four lab that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, under what circumstances the two uh, uh, um, scientists, the top fi- scientists who who were conducting business there, who um, you know without authorization shipped samples to China and then later on got their security clearance removed, revoked and then was fired, under what circumstances did that happen? It was just right at the cuffs of the COVID virus uh, pandemic. So even that, that particular request, it was a uh, uh, passed and expressed unanimously by Parliament uh, in four votes. That was in 2021. And what did the government do? They take Parliament to court by suing the, the, the chair of the, uh, of the Parliament. Mm-hmm. And that, and, and then that, that the whole case was thrown out of courts because uh, the the election was called uh, by uh, by August 2021. So we haven't even have, 
you know, any transparency into under what circumstances did that happen? The People's Liberation Army, the, the uh, Chinese Communist People's Liberation Army, they have their representative in Winnipeg helping us, or so-called quote-unquote helping. And what are these uh, experiments that they're doing? Is it related to the uh, firing of the scientists? There are so many questions that the government has not come clean. Do you feel vindicated? Do you feel vindicated based on what you've been talking about prior to the last election to today and regarding this uh, document that was uh, leaked to the Globe and Mail? Do you feel vindicated? Well, you know, it it doesn't matter whether I'm vindicated or not. I'm happy that it's, it's, it's got more exposure now. What I'm concerned about is the inaction that our country is taking. Uh, it, it, this inaction is actually sending out a message to all the predatorial aggressive regimes that are watching right now, the Russia, the Iranians, et cetera, et cetera, that we are, we are weak. We are primed for interference, and we don't want that. You know, we haven't mentioned, you haven't mentioned talk, uh, we haven't talked about the, the transnational repression that's been conducted by foreign agents on Canadian soils that is happening. And the People's Republic of China, it's also guilty of that as well. Yeah, well, lots to talk about. We will have you on again uh, for sure. Kenny, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Jess, for having me. All right. Today, the Public Order Emergency Commission said that the Liberal government did meet the very high threshold uh, for invoking the Emergencies Act during the Freedom Convoy protests last winter. You may recall it was an incredibly polarizing time uh, across Canada as we watched tra- what transpired on the streets of Ottawa. Now, Justice Paul Rouleau's report, which is more than 2,000 pages long, uh, describes in painstaking detail how the protests began and how things uh, transpired. And while I haven't read all of it, uh, from what I've seen so far, uh, there's definitely lots of blame to go around. The protesters were unruly and unlawful at times. A prime minister whose comments, uh, to a certain degree, may have inflamed the situation. You had the Ottawa Police Service that uh, was, uh, some would argue, overwhelmed and unprepared for the protest, and an Ontario government that refused to get involved, even though what was happening was transpiring uh, in their province. Now, Prime Minister Trudeau was asked about some of the comments he made uh, during that period. Uh, He spoke to the media a couple of hours ago. Take a listen. And as much as I tried to emphasize throughout the time that, of course, we're always going to stand up for freedom of speech and freedom to protest peacefully. I wish I hadn't said something that was able to be spread larger. Um, If I had chosen my words a bit careful, a bit more specific, I think things might have been a bit easier. Now, we've had a lot of calls on our buzz lines as well uh, on this issue, and I know it's very polarizing. Here's some of the comments. I believe that uh, if there's a situation that you need to be taken care of, and he had plenty of time. People traveled across this country for days and days and days and knew they were coming, and he could even just made up some kind of little speech or little blurb or something and actually showed that he took some kind of interest in what not just the truckers, but the tens of thousands of people that supported them all the way across this country. I appreciate that caller uh, giving us a call on the buzz line. Call us at 604-331-2899. I would say as well uh, that the trucking industry itself wasn't supportive of this, number one. And as I've said in the first hour of this show, uh, you can't just show up on Parliament Hill and demand a, a meeting with a private citizen or private citizens demanding a meeting with the prime minister of this country. It just doesn't work that way. The minute he, as our caller said, just showed up and maybe came out and delivered a speech, well, then the next group will want that. And who are these particular individuals to demand that from an elected official? I'm not talking about your local MLA. I'm talking about the prime minister of Canada. There's lots to um, sort of uh, peel away here and discuss. And our next guest has followed this very closely. She's been on this show before, and I've always appreciated her comments. Sandy Garasino is a former Crown prosecutor and a columnist with the National Observer. Sandy, thank you for joining us today. Great to talk to you, Jeff. It's, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. You know, there's lots to unpack here. First of all, just to broadly, your thoughts on this uh, particular report from uh, Justice Rouleau. Well, it, it, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm not surprised by the conclusion. At the same time, it was a little bit 
there, there was a bit of a leap involved there because, as you know, the definition of a threat to national security in the legislation was that it was supposed to be defined by the CSIS Act, which was pretty tight and narrow. And I was, um, I was curious to know, would the justice find a way to sort of broaden that out and get himself some room, which he did do. That, to me, is the, is the number one con- is the number one takeaway is that the the um, uh, Emergencies Act language is pretty tight. It it, it really ties the government's hands pretty tightly, and uh, I, I thought that the, the justice kind of opened that up a little bit. That that was a bit of a surprise to me. So, as a former Crown prosecutor, you, you think this is healthy? So that next time, let's hope there's not a next time. But if there is a next time. And in a nation's history, there generally is uh, these these inflection points. Um, we should be focusing on what is what should an emergency act look like, and what should be declared an emergency. But it shouldn't be just narrowly defined by CSIS. They, that should include our national police agency as well. Well, well, it should. And, and just to, just to give a little bit of a contrast, you know, the um, um, uh, the CSIS Act actually defines uh, threats to national security. That could also be we can ha- we can have a declaration of an emergency, or the, rather the Emergencies Act. Um, you can have a declaration of an emergency as we did uh, when we had the uh, the, the flooding a, mm-hmm. a year and a half ago, uh, a natural disaster emergency, and the and the requirements are very very broad, and it's not it's not. Uh, treated in this in this extremely narrow way, um, there was I think the drafting of this came about because of the excesses of the War Measures Act and the anxiety of Parliament to to really you know bring that under control and to make sure that the legislation abided by Charter of Rights. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, this is getting highly technical and probably boring. Most of no, but listeners. it's it's important. It is important because I think people need to believe that. that I mean, I think. Is there blame to be pointed in the direction of the prime minister? Absolutely. He probably should have chose his words uh, carefully. But I got to tell you, when it comes to leadership, where was Doug Ford in all of this? This is your province, right? And I've never seen a a leader just hiding, didn't didn't want to touch it, didn't want to be near it. And, uh, you know, just... just... Yeah, and and that is really where I think, you know, subtly and in very judicious language... That's really where this report is going, and that's where the attention should be, because this was not an emergency caused by people protesting. This was an emergency, and, and Justice Rouleau is careful to say that the vast majority of protesters were exercising their uh, lawful rights, their democratic rights to protest. So that's not what the problem was. The problem was that the police entirely failed wholly and completely. And policing in this context is a provincial jurisdiction. This was Doug Ford's to own. And somehow it's got shunted onto uh, the prime minister's, uh, got put onto his desk to deal with because the, the emergency was that the police had utterly failed. That mm-hmm. was the emergency. And we've got to remember there were, you know, there were other incidents even, I think, along the Alberta-U.S. Yep. border in regards to a vehicle uh, in Kutsia. And, and so there is that element. And people would say, well, it's a small element, but it's an element that is incredibly engaged, emboldened, and that's all you need uh, to, to, to do things uh, that may be illegal and harmful uh, to people as well. Uh, broadly, just for a moment, and I know it's a tough question to answer, if we just step away from that moment in our history. Um, where do you think we are in the era of populism? Some have said, look, Trump's popularity is waning, although he wants to be president again. Uh, are we in the early stages of populism waning, or do you think we are still in the midst of, um, of, of this populist movement that is still straining our, our institutions and, and they're having difficulty uh, trying to um, comprehend and deal with the challenges that are before us? Such an interesting question, Jeff, because I, I wish I, I wish I knew. I wish I had a crystal ball, but I see a tension of two different trends going on. Um, disinformation and misinformation is extremely profitable, and it's very easy to produce. Look at Alex Jones, who amassed a net worth of hundreds of millions of dollars uh, while he was, you know, spreading all these lies and disinformation about the families, the, the Sandy Hook parents. 
um, and he was involved in spreading disinformation and misinformation about the convoy and about vaccines and about Canadian policy. Uh, we had a lot of misinformation, disinformation spread uh, by Americans, by, by Fox News, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, Ben Shapiro, Ted Cruz. There was a huge, Donald Trump himself. There's, there, there is, uh, and, and it and it is profitable. And look at what we're seeing now with the uh, Dominion voting uh, machines lawsuit in the United States with Fox News, where all of those uh, key public figures were privately um, admitting that they knew that, the, that Donald Trump's claims were complete horse manure um, and and they were wrong, but they spread them and they pushed them. And they they pushed all this disinformation knowingly for ratings because they were concerned about revenues. So the things that the thing that's interesting to me is how easy it is to make money using disinformation and misinformation, and how easy it is for that to spread into ordinary platforms. At the same time, I don't know, Jazz. I'm interested in your thoughts about this. I feel like people are just tired of it all. They just want an end to like all of this incredible drama all the time. I don't know about you, but I feel like you know family members, people that I know who you know a year ago were all upset about vaccines and policy and all this kind of stuff, and everybody just sort of can we just get over it now? You mm-hmm. know, sit down to Thanksgiving and forget about it. No, I think you raise a very good point. I think people are tired. In fact, I think the midterms in the U.S. election, I think, uh, yeah. was a really. Uh, uh, a reminder to the Republicans that, look, we've had enough. Uh, and sometimes th- these lessons are learned slowly. But uh, the reason I asked you that previous question about populism winning, I think it's going to take still a few more years. But I think we're heading in that direction because mm-hmm. people are tired of fighting. I think we're going through a generational reset, technical disruption, mm-hmm. geopolitical disruption with the rise of Asia, demographic disruption with the rise of a millennial generation that perhaps, well, we have similar values, but the priorities may be different. Add to that those three elements that I've just raised, inequality, and you have mm-hmm. that you had the, the the all of that sort of the key ingredients for populism mm-hmm. but i also believe as this generational reset and we're in the midst of it now we will be onward to better years and we're always going to have things to debate and, and issues to talk about but i think this particular nasty part of our politics and, and less respectful period will come to an end. And I'm, I'm an optimist by nature, and I think it's going to get there. And perhaps these reports that we were talking about today is part of that to shine some light on where we can all sort of reflect uh, on how we could do better. I'm glad the prime minister is doing doing that. And I also reflect on maybe I should have asked better questions. Maybe I should be a better listener. I think that's all part of it. And the fact that you're bringing it up as well, that we just, we just are, all want to move on and let's talk about other issues that also impact people, inflation, uh, uh, housing here in, in British Columbia and Vancouver and affordability and all those other issues mm-hmm. that we all mm-hmm. have to get there together. So I think we're getting there. Uh, I still think we're in the midst of probably two or three more years of polarized politics before we get to that sort of promised land. It's not perfect, but I think we're getting there, and I'm an optimist. I so. hope so. <laughs> I, 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 hope you're, I hope you're right. I think, I think it's certainly the Canadian way. We want to get, we want to be together. We want to, um, uh, we, we, we do want to, to be a united nation. I don't think that we want to be fighting with each other and hateful about all these things all the time. No. It's, it's too demanding. It's exhausting. <laughs> exactly. Sandy, thank you for your time. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You too. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.